Matthew chapter 13, starting to read at verse 24. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like the man sowing good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed ears, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull the weeds up? No, he answered. Because while you're pulling up the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let them both grow together until harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them into bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. I'm going to go to verse 36 now. Then he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, The one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one. And the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is at the end of the age. And the harvesters are the angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels. They will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace there, where there will be gnashing and weeping of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father, Whoever has ears, let them hear. And now we continue to verse 47. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into a lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets and threw away the bad. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, I won't ask for a show of hands, but I wonder how many of you struggle with patience. I really struggle with patience. I have been mastering impatience since the moment I was born, I think. Uh, most of us have either had children, seen children. Um, we know that we learn this desire to have food and toys that we don't have and we need it now. Uh, we hone that skill in our childhood and our teenage years when the things that we are impatient for change and perhaps the longing is for presents or holidays, or when you get a little bit older, a bit more serious things, perhaps in one sense, things like important exam results. Um, and most of us, at least if 41-year-old me is anything to go by, are still wrestling with impatience now. The subject might change. Uh, it might be a career path. That's not what I'm impatient about. Uh, it might be life circumstances changing. 
might be that you're impatient for the phone to ring with the test results that you're waiting for. It's all sorts of things that leave us impatient. In fact, perhaps we are more impatient than we would like anybody else to know. But Jesus knows all of that. He knows how hard we find patience in all of those different spheres of life. And he knew exactly how hard his first disciples were struggling with patience. In Matthew 13, the main focus of struggle is with what seems to be the delay in the coming of the kingdom of God. Or in Matthew's gospel, it's the kingdom of heaven. And that is center stage in the two parables that we read. If you look in verse 24, verse 47, both times Jesus begins by saying, the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like. He is digging into this subject because his disciples are struggling with the waiting. Jews, ever since the Old Testament was completed, though of course if you were living in Jesus' day, it would be hard to know that the Old Testament had been completed, but with all of their scriptures, they had this sense of longing and waiting for this kingdom to come. And we saw last week that when John the Baptist, who in the New Testament is rightly understood as the last Old Testament prophet because he was the last one to prepare the way for Jesus, we saw that when John the Baptist started preaching, he was explaining that the kingdom of heaven is coming near. In fact, if, there's no reason to turn there yourself. It might come up on the screen. A little later in chapter 3, John says, The axe has been laid to the root of the trees, and every tree that doesn't bear, uh, produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. If you heard that live the first time, you'd be expecting trees to be felled, left, right, and center, wouldn't you? You'd have that expectation of this happening now. And in one sense, Jesus' ministry picks up on that theme on the kingdom coming now. We saw that last week. Jesus began his ministry by saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Problem for the disciples that's driving their impatience about this subject is it didn't seem to be. Or at least it wasn't happening fast, or at least it wasn't happening and affecting everything all around them. Loads of people were rejecting Jesus. And, and not only that, but there were some people who were holding themselves out to be followers of Jesus that the disciples didn't think were part of the gang. Do you remember the story in, in Luke 9 where um, the disciples have another one of their scuffles about which of them is going to be the greatest? And if you read it for the first time, you might think it's a bit embarrassing until you reflect on your own heart and you realize that we're all just as sinful as they were. But do you remember that conversation that they're fighting over which one's going to be the greatest? And Jesus responds to them by teaching them that to be in the kingdom of heaven is to have a heart of humility. It's to love the least and the smallest. He uses the example of children. And in response to what Jesus has just said, John says, Master, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he's not one of us. Disciples just didn't get it. Not only did they struggle to learn the very basic principles of humility and of sacrifice, they also considered themselves so zealous for the kingdom that they would chase out anyone who wasn't part of their little group. 
Now, our battle for patience with God's kingdom is different, but it's just as important. And perhaps our biggest struggle is we're still waiting. It's been 2,000 years since Jesus' first coming. And we are still waiting for the fullness of his kingdom to come. And for all of that time, Christians have been living with the reality of what Jesus describes in the parable of the weeds. We have limped along, surrounded by a world of suffering and pain. We've tried to keep going when everywhere around us is evil and wickedness, not just in some far-flung country that hasn't yet really understood civilized ways of doing things. Here, in our country, there are Christians who are struggling in every kind of struggle, spiritually, mentally, physically. There are well-known professing Christians whose lives have been revealed to be a sham of sinfulness and hypocrisy. There are subjects being taught in our schools that are not just slightly apart from a Christian way of thinking, but entire curriculums are just anti-Christian. So how are you, how am I, going to respond to that? Because that's our world. We have not yet seen that unveiling of the kingdom of God to such an extent that his reign and rule over all things is perfect and complete. We are living with all of these kinds of struggles. So if you're a Christian, some of you have got that kind of active bent that the disciples had and that the servants in the parable had. And maybe your way of responding to what seems to be the slowness of the kingdom of God coming is to kind of take action yourself. You're going to crack on and get stuff done. Or maybe you're a Christian with a different temperament and actually it's ebbing away at your confidence in God's word. Because you've waited. You might now be in your 70s, 80s. You might have been waiting 60, 70 years of your life to see more evidence of God's kingdom growing and for Jesus himself to return And it's still not happened. Perhaps in your heart, the response to all of that waiting and delay is it's beginning to ebb away at your confidence in God's word. Some of you are here this morning and you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian. And you've got to respond to this delay too. Because this is what somebody said 2,000 years ago and we're still here today. So how are you going to respond? And for some of you, the way you respond is, well, nothing really seems to be happening, does it? And if nothing's really happening now, then there's no reason to think that anything's ever going to happen, which kind of means, why bother with Christianity at all? Why suffer the cost of being a Christian if it's not really true? That's your question. Can you log that question in your mind? Because we're going to come back to it towards the end. They're the the questions, they're the struggles that Jesus answers in the parables of both the weeds and the net. 
And what Jesus does is he tells us what God is doing now and what God is going to do in the future. And he tells us those two things so that we wouldn't become impatient or discouraged or disinterested. It's got two simple points this morning. The first one is that God is building his kingdom now. So be patient. God is building his kingdom now, so be patient. Look, let's work through the parable of the weeds first. Uh, We're reminded in verse 24 that the sower sowed good seed in his field. In the parable of the sower, Jesus doesn't give us that detail because in that parable, it wasn't so important. But in this parable, it is. It matters that we know that the sower of the good seed is sowing seed in his field, which means the enemy, verse 25, has absolutely no right to even be in the field. This enemy is trespassing. And even in the way that Jesus tells the story, we know, the enemy knows, he shouldn't be there. Because he waits until everybody else is sleeping before he goes out and sows his seed. Everything he's doing is wrong at every level. And what makes it even worse is that what he's doing isn't going to benefit anyone. Now, might make a little bit more sense if what he was doing was sneaking onto somebody else's perfectly kept veg patch and stealing a corner of a raised bed for his own tomatoes. You could kind of understand that. It'd be wrong, but you could kind of understand that. Translators think that the word that Matthew's using for weeds here is actually a word referring to darnel, or darnel, I'm not entirely sure how you pronounce it. But darnel is a type of weed that hosts a fungus that's poisonous to animals and people. So the very thing that this enemy is sowing in somebody else's field can't be used by anyone, not even by him. This whole exercise is one of spite against the owner of the field. And the trickiness takes on another level because if you know anything about darnel, I didn't before this week, but if you know anything about darnel, when it's a young plant, it grows up looking exactly like wheat. It's only when you get to the stage when the ears start to come out that you can see anything of a difference, which I can really relate to because I'm a bad gardener. I'm still right at the entry level of gardening. And this is my fear of weeding. My great phobia is that I'm going to blitz the bed and pull out half of the good plants that I've just planted three weeks ago because I can't recognize them. Has anybody else got willow herb in their garden? Have, you, have any of you managed to crack how to get rid of it yet? No. Okay. Well, I was hoping for a bit more help than that, really. Um, my problem is the willow herbs everywhere Up until about, I don't know, two weeks or something, I can't tell the difference. The weeds and the flowers and the plants, they've all got the same foliage, and I have no idea which one I'm supposed to be pulling out. Which is why, in the parable, it takes the disciples, sorry, the servants, sometime, verse 27, to spot which one's which and to work out what's going on. This isn't just a massive spread of the wheat. We've got a whole load of weeds all the way through here. So they come up with this good solution. Once they understand from the owner what's happened, an enemy did this, they then come up with a really 
clear, sensible solution. Well, shall we go out and weed everything? Which to me sounds like the wisest thing you would do. Just go and pull it all up so that you give the most space for the wheat that you want to grow to grow into big, healthy crops. Only that's not what the farmer says they need to do. Verse 29, No, he answered, because while you're pulling up the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. When I finally know that what I'm looking at is one of those herbs, I don't even want to use their name because it just makes me angry. You pull it out and you're like, this whole like mass of roots comes out for this tiny plant that's about that big. That's how weeds work, isn't it? Their root network just gets everywhere, and inevitably, I find, as I'm yanking on this wretched plant, I pull out two or three other plants that I then have to bed back in. That's what Jesus says here. If you pulled out all of these darnel plants, all of their roots are intertangled with the wheat, and you would end up yanking out loads of the wheat. So do you see the farmer's priority? It's not that you have a perfectly clean field free of any kind of weeds. It's just wheat. His priority is that the wheat grows to a mature plant that is ready to be harvested. That's what this farmer's concerned about. Now, the disciples don't understand all of that. So when the crowd leaves, verse 36, they say to Jesus, we have no idea what you're talking about. Please, can you explain the parable of the weeds in the field? And what Jesus goes on to do is unpack all of the level of detail. And that's quite unusual. Parable of the sower, parable of the weeds are the two parables that Jesus explains the most. It's very unusual for Jesus' parables to have been said in a way where we're supposed to take a detail in every single part and apply it to something else. Normally, Jesus' way of using a parable is to tell a story that we take the main point from, and that's what he wants us to know. But it's different with these two parables, and he's really clear about all of the details. So Jesus is the sower. Verse 37, he's sowing. The tense is actually present tense, i.e. he's still sowing today. That's the imagery that we're supposed to take from this. And things are different to the parable of the sower. Parable of the sower, the, the farmer sows the seed, which is the word that's then received by the soil, and they grow depending on how the soil is prepared. In the parable of the weeds, the seed is the people of the kingdom of God. So Jesus is planting his people, verse 38, into the world. And, and that detail matters too, because sometimes when Christians read this parable, they can read it narrowly and think what Jesus is referring to here is the state of the church. So what Jesus is describing is the reality that uh, in any church, you're going to have lots and lots of genuine, genuine Christians, but you'll also have some who are professing Christians whose lives are going to show, whether in this life or the judgment day, that they weren't genuine Christians. And if you were to read this parable that narrowly, what Jesus is saying is, you just need to be aware of that because you can't really do anything about it, but when I come, we'll sort it all out. 
Now, there are other sections of Jesus' teaching where he is clear about the nature of the church, but that's not his point here. And we know it's not because he tells us specifically, verse 38, that the field he's sowing in is the whole world. The kingdom of God is not limited to small gatherings of churches like ours. You should see, you absolutely should see, that in any faithful church, you should see evidence of the kingdom of heaven at work. You should see people living differently towards one another. You should see them loving God differently. You should see them more thoughtful about the way that they're reaching out into the world. You should see all of those things. Because a church is a family of people who have been changed and are changing to become more like Jesus. But this is not the limitation of the kingdom of heaven. God is at work because he is reigning and ruling over all things. And one day we will see him transform that reign to rule perfectly over everything. Until then, Jesus has placed his people to live throughout the world, verse 41, amongst everything that causes sin and all who do evil. That's our experience, isn't it? That's not to say that Christians are perfect. We absolutely are not. And it's not to say that the world in which we live and the people that surround us are as bad as they possibly could be. They are absolutely not. But we live in a world where we are surrounded by evil and sin and suffering. How are you going to respond to that? Is your spiritual heart going to drop? Because it's just been so long, nothing really seems to be changing, and you're done. Or perhaps you're getting to that point where you think, I'm just, I'm just going to get on and do some stuff by myself, because this is taking so long. It's almost as though maybe God doesn't seem to care. Look at all of the weeds. The first reason Jesus tells us this parable is that we would see what God is doing. I wonder if you live near a garden or maybe an allotment where in the run-up to harvest, the garden, the allotment looks a bit like what this field would have looked like. The weeds are so tall, you can't see the fences, let alone the plants and the grass. If you were to look at that garden or that allotment, you would have good reason to think the, the owner, the gardener, doesn't care. How could you if all the weeds are up here? Jesus does care. More than any of us ever could for the kingdom of God. Look back at verse 29. He is letting the weeds grow because he cares. He knows better than we do that if he were to pull out all of the weeds now, there would be good crop that would be damaged. And in ways we can't possibly understand because our minds are too small, God is at work. What's one of the most famous verses that as Christians we cling hold of? In Romans 8, 
God works all things together for the good of those who love him. Here's one of the reminders of how painful that truth can be. Speaking to somebody on the phone this week who's going through that hard providence of having lost their father. Really tearful about everything, but he's reading Thomas Watson as that Puritan writer explains the Lord's Prayer. And he was gripped afresh that every time we pray, thy kingdom come, it doesn't just mean good things. It doesn't just mean Hundreds of conversions and wonderful baptisms and all of the other things that in God's kingdom do come. Thy kingdom come is also coming through being surrounded by all of the weeds that can leave us feeling really discouraged. So don't misunderstand the weeds. Don't misread the pain and the suffering. Yes, they are there to make us long for Jesus to return. Yes, they are hard and they leave us groaning, but they are not evidence that God doesn't care. His plan is bigger. He is even working by leaving those things there to ensure that Christians grow to maturity. That's the first thing we need to see. We need to be patient as we wait and trust that God knows how he's building his kingdom. But if if Jesus stopped there we would be somewhat stuck. In one sense, Jesus could have stopped there. He could have said, you just have to trust me, in which case our answer would be, yes, Lord. But we'd still have lots of questions. Questions like, will the wickedness ever end? Is there going to come a point when all of the pain and the suffering that's been inflicted by some on others is going to be held accountable? They're the questions that Jesus then goes on to answer, and he does it by telling us how the story ends. Second thing we need to see is that God will consummate his kingdom, so be ready. God will consummate, meaning bring it to completion in every single detail. So back in the parable of the sower, uh, the sower promises that he will send out his harvesters, and they're going to do their job. They're going to collect and burn the weeds. They're going to gather and draw the wheat into the owner's barn. And when Jesus explains all of that to his disciples, he tells them that the harvesters are his angels. At his command, they're going to go out and gather all people and sift. And that truth is picked up again in the parable of the net, which is why I thought we would do both together, because the parables share so much in similarity. This net... um, in Jesus' day, with lots of people working as fishermen around the lake, they don't know exactly what Jesus was talking about. It's um, the kind of net that you would have held taut between two points. It might have been two boats that would then sail through the lake, uh, or you might have anchored it on the shore and had the other end on one boat that would do a big arch and sweep everything up. It had weights at the bottom, So the whole net was kept as one kind of barricade as the net was dragged through, hence dragnet, through the water. And then all of the fishermen would pull out all of the fish from this net and separate them between the good and the bad. Verse 49. This is how it will come. uh, This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous. Back in verse 41, Jesus tells us what the angels 
do. Son of man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. Jesus says there is coming a day when the perfect gardener in the perfect time will make his kingdom perfect. That day is coming. And everything that is sinful will be banished forever. Everything that causes sin will be banished forever. All who do and delight in sin will be banished forever. All of that is going to happen. And Jesus is really clear about what that means for every single one of us. There are only two places where all of humanity can go. And you go where reflects your longing in this life. Some who are the children of the kingdom of God will be with him forever. But for everyone who has lived their life rejecting Jesus as the Savior and King, their eternal future is awful. Verse 42, they'll be thrown into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You can't describe the horror of that in words. The tears here are not a sense of remorse for things that have gone wrong. Sadness of separation from loved ones. Sense of Calamity. One pastor says that the tears of which Jesus speaks here are those of inconsolable, never-ending wretchedness and utter, everlasting hopelessness. If you're not a Christian here this morning, can I plead with you to see the big picture that Jesus is describing here? You may look around the world as I do and long for justice. You may see all of the weeds, as it were, in this farmer's field and be aching for the sin and the suffering and the pain to be over, for, for innocent men and women and children whose lives are being ruined by all of this to not only be saved and rescued, but for there to be an account Here's my question for you. What is your hope that that day of reckoning, that day of fair justice will come? What are you holding on to that gives you good reason to think there will come a day when the wickedness will end and the wicked will be punished? Can I encourage you to see that there is no better confidence in that day and the Christian worldview. This is how God himself, who is the owner of the kingdom, tells us the story ends. He's going to be the one to bring about perfect justice. He's going to be the one to pull out all of those weeds. God himself is going to root out everything that causes sin and all who do evil. I can't wait. Only 
Left to myself, I'm also dreading it. Because you see, on my own, as for all of us on our own, we cause sin and do evil too. It'd be very easy to read a passage like this and think, you know what, I'm really glad that those awful people over there are going to get the judgment they deserve. But the problem with the human condition is all of us have the seeds of those sins in our hearts. You may not be committing the atrocities that you read about in the news this week, but the, the bitterness and the envy and the hatred is still simmering in your heart as it does in the heart of every human being. And that means we are left with this horrendous problem. Because the judgment that we long for, for others, we deserve ourselves. And actually the judgment that we deserve is even greater than we might expect because our greatest problem is not only that we are sinning against other people. It's that we are willfully hating and disobeying the God who's made us. And the punishment for that is what Jesus teaches in this parable. It means that we are left with with an inescapable problem. You're looking out on all the injustice thinking, how could it end? God tells you this is how it's going to end. I'm the creator and the judge of all things, and I will perfectly judge all wickedness. Great hope for all the injustice. Great fear. Because I deserve the judgment too. And it's into that conundrum that the hope of the gospel shatters your fear. Because Jesus himself came into this world to take the punishment for every single one. Ollie read, whoever believes in him. He takes the punishment for all of us so that we need not fear that judgment to come. I read this week of how um, a former Anglican called R.C. Trench was amazed at this wonderful reminder of the gospel as he reads this horrific description of the weeping and gnashing of teeth. He says, Whatever the precise meaning of these words, this at all events is certain, that they point to some doom so intolerable that the Son of God came down from heaven and tasted all the bitterness of death that he might deliver us from ever knowing the secrets of anguish, which unless God be mocking men with empty threats are shut up in those terrible words. Is that a lovely reminder of the hope of God in the extremity of the horror of sin and the judgment of pain? That's how great God's love for the world is. God knows the horrors of hell. And he has not left us to experience them forever. He has sent his own son that whoever believes in him shall not perish like this, but have everlasting life. So the question that you need to be absolutely clear on in your heart today is have you repented? Have you turned from your sin and trusted in Jesus? Do not listen to the lies of the devil. The devil's got loads of lies. 
Some of them include, none of this is really true. You don't need to really be worried about any of this because look, you're 2,000 years later and the Christian church is still waiting. Remember that question I asked at the beginning? Why suffer the cost of being a Christian? The Bible's answer is to look to Jesus because Jesus shows you that hell is real. It's the only reason he came. He came to bear the torment and the judgment of God so that if you trust and believe in him, you can be spared all of that. And in his great grace, you are here this morning. You are here to hear that the consummation of the kingdom is going to come. Jesus is going to return. One day his angels will gather all people. You are here to hear that all those who repent and believe in Jesus will, as Jesus tells us, shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father forever. That is why Jesus has come. He's come to show you by his death that hell is so real, he would leave heaven to suffer to save you from it. Please, don't ignore his death. Don't ignore his warning. When he was old, Polycarp, the bishop of Smyrna, was being threatened to be burnt unless he recanted, unless he said that his faith was not true. And all of his friends and the people around him were pleading with him to think, Polycarp, think about how painful it would be. Just just say it wasn't true. Polycarp's amazing reply was this. You threaten me with a fire that burns for an hour and a little while is put out. For you do not know about the fire of the judgment to come and the fire of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. If you are not yet a Christian, please listen to these final 15 seconds. Being a Christian is costly. Jesus never, ever denied that. But what he teaches us is the cost of not being a Christian. And he came so that you can be saved from that cost. Let's pray. Father God, as we are confronted with the reality of eternity, we are reminded of our smallness, of our sinfulness, and of our desperate need of a Savior. Father, it's so hard for us as finite people to know, to understand all that is to come at the end of time and into eternity beyond. Even the words leave us struggling to fully understand what you have taught us. But you have made crystal clear all that we need to know. Your son has not only taught us how serious judgment is, but he has shown us 
the divine goodness and mercy and grace of God that would send the one and only Son of God into our world to suffer, not only at the hands of men who forsook him, but at the hands of his Father, all of the just judgment of God upon our sin, so that we can be spared of that future and look forward to an eternity with you. Father, I plead with you on behalf of everyone here this morning that your spirit would open the eyes of every single person who has not yet turned and trusted in Jesus. Please, would you show us how great is the cost of not being a Christian? And would you use that, that reality to draw us to a grace that none of us deserve? Would you bring into the kingdom, even this day, men and women and boys and girls who have been pushing off responding to Jesus? Some who, as Nick was telling us down in Truro, may have been walking with Jesus for so long but are now living in a period of rebellion and now turning away from the things that perhaps weeks, months, years ago they would have believed with all of their heart. Father, your grace is sufficient even for those who have wandered. We plead with you this day. Please, would you bring into the kingdom all those we know and love, those we live around, and those we work alongside. Would you be more gracious to us than we deserve? We pray that your honor and glory would be lifted high. In Jesus' name, amen.